Hello! This is yet another live episode of Enter the Matrix. It is a second one, in fact. And I've got Nathan with me again. Hello. And to today we plan to touch on a kind of different topic that was suggested on our Discord. And that is how to tackle preparation for WTC in advance. And by that, we mean how to structure your year knowing that you want to attend the very next year and how to make sure that you upskill your people that you prepare that you bring out the best out of your community but before we get into that nathan i saw you were playing a little bit more of sean nathan's list how mm. was you how was it how were you enjoying the army that list for singles i actually have found it really good i've just taken it to two events in a row uh, for a five-round tournament, I went four and one, lost to double rape my elder. And then I've just gone to a weekend, uh, just went to an event at the weekend, uh, where it's six rounds, and I went five and one and came second. But I will caveat that with this tournament did it on win percentage of opponents. So if it was actual scores, I came like seventh because it actually would have been one to six elder. Um, but instead it was one Tyranids and then the rest of the top five were Elder. Um, so the way it worked was, depending on obviously who you played, if they won more games, that your score was higher, which is, again, we could, we could do a whole episode on scoring systems. Uh, but yeah, like Sean Naden's list, I think for singles has been absolutely fantastic. I hope it doesn't change too much in the new mid codex. Uh, but I imagine some of it will. Uh, yeah, basically, outside of Eldar and Knights, it seems really, really strong. This is almost everything that I've played. So, yeah, I've been enjoying it quite a lot, and it's nice to get back to singles, despite the uh, Eldar infection. I mean, you're bound to have some bad games. Hopefully, sure. fingers crossed, after tomorrow, it's not going to be a thing anymore. But you never know, and you cannot be really sure about it, so we'll see. But, yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, we can have a slight slap of 10 points or something <laughs> meaningful. But yeah, uh, having said that, I think this might be an episode that we might get even some live questions that will be worth covering. So what we mentioned at the very beginning is that we want to cover that team's preparation in advance and how to structure your team, what to look out for. And we've got like few bullet, bullet points that we want to cover, but I think those can get pretty drawn out and we will get into much deeper conversations. But I think, at least for me, the most important thing that I think was very much visible this year was that you need to make sure that your team is not only the team you are bringing, and I do not mean that by coaching staff, but I mean improving like a wider array of players so you can choose from more players and also improve your testing group before the event so you have more people that you can test with, upskill more people to bring out your events to let them know how the system works, etc., etc. Where I think sometimes teams that have many people that leave off coaching can be at a detriment in that sense, because it is very impactful for a team to 
up bring more newer faces and give them free lessons, teach them everything and open up your processes. And I think this is, I think the most important part you can do at this point before next WTC is to start finding out who's in your community willing to attend next year and then try to use your time throughout the year with those players to upskill them by either playing your top players. So if you have very good players in your country and you can afford them to play on TTS or anything, just get those games out, especially if you can get another players to watch those games. I think this is very important. And also there's another layer of that, that if you have a such newer player, they will need more supervision to some extent and motivation. So I think you can even try to gradually add some tasks for those people to get better and be very specific about how you want to upskill newer players. I think for me, that's the most important thing because most of the teams that you will, especially after this year, if you'll hear what they had to say afterwards is that they missed something. They missed an army. They missed another army. And that's mostly because you do not have enough brain power and enough people to be able to test everything that's out there. You might have your own team that is very set on certain way of thinking of how to approach the team, of how to build certain armies. And it's easy to get compressed into your own way of approaching the game and having more people can be easier for you to have an outside look of someone who might be following something else or even trying something on their own instead of just sheepishly following what you have as an idea what's your take on it yeah like any squad that you build if you just select your eight players it's probably not going to be as successful as any others i think especially from an England perspective, we've always tried to do it as we get like 40, 50 applicants. You try and narrow it down to about 16-man squad. And from the 16, you then try and make... Basically, you are going to have the obviously eight players selected to play, but you almost want to have the same again in people who are almost capable of making the team. Because like you said, you need to have these abilities to bounce armies off some faction specialists who maybe don't do as well at singles because they play different armies still have a lot of value because they're able to bring in different ideas with different armies. And I think ETCs, or sorry, WTCs have been won and lost on creativity with army choices and everything else. And I think also most importantly, from a captain's perspective, if you have multiple people or a big scene trying to apply for your team, having competition for places is fantastic because it makes everybody work harder. If you only have 10 applicants for eight players, probably half of them aren't going to do very well because they're not really going to push themselves to, oh, actually somebody might take my spot. I think having healthy competition and having that ability to each year grow that competition to make it actually we've got a choice to make for those eight players, I think is actually for your scene and your team is phenomenal like how many top level polish players probably didn't make the team this year but they didn't have the ego to go well you didn't pick me so i'm not interested anymore they still carried her on and helped out the team it's so important yeah and there's also another layer to that and it's i see many teams choosing their team quite early 
And I think this is also a mistake, at least in my eyes, because if you choose your team, say, like some teams choose them in November, December, those players can get complacent because they know they are on the team. They might decide that, well, I'll get back to playing in April because the meta won't matter, but you still need those reps to be on top of your game to know some of the tricks, maybe some of the tr things that you will learn throughout those weeks will be effective. So unless you have a very good reason as a nation to choose your team earlier because of financial burdens like Aussies or New Zealand, like I can see those teams need to choose early to make sure that people can book their time off. But you can also go route that, for example, US took. Everyone goes either as a coaching staff, even if you are like potential player or a player after all. So everyone goes, still buys the tickets. Everyone will go. Non-player within the team, coach, whatever you name it. They will still be there. They will still help out. They will still learn. But this way you can enforce that your choice of a team will be made later. So you keep the players engaged for a longer time, which I, what you said brings out the competition within the team. And I think it's important that also players know that this is like it. And it allows you to even choose players later, which is very beneficial knowing that sometimes the balanced data slates can just turn the game around. And if you have, say, faction specialists, suddenly they might not be as good of a choice if their army is just bad. Exactly. Like yeah. nowadays, you wouldn't take a Death Guard specialist, right? No, no. I, there hasn't been a while since a Death Guard specialist has been useful, but they are out there and you are still appreciated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anything to add to that? Because I, I think I saw many teams choose the team early. And for me, that's like the very first step you can make that is a mistake. Because then you lose engagement out of the remainder of your community. And sometimes you can get the comments that you're very narrow in your choosing of the team. Also, you do not. There's another problem that just after the WTC, you have, say, like three months to choose the new team. Like, you do not give a chance to newer faces to yeah. spring up within that half a year. And probably you didn't even give them a chance before because you were already deep in preparation. So suddenly it means that they had maybe like two months span. Obviously, if you have like a ranking system, you might say that somebody sprang up the rankings, but I think you're missing on the potential of someone new just getting better at the end, like say maybe February, March. Some people can just quickly get better, especially if you include that, if you do that whole prep throughout the year well, you give them multiple chances to get better. And if you choose the team earlier, they might not be as engaged because they know they won't make it. So. Yeah, I think with that, again, it also goes down, I think we mentioned it earlier, how quick the meta shifts can determine how busy some people are on the tournament scene. Even if you have three or four armies, if they all suck, you might be complacent and not going to as many events, or you don't, some people aren't meta chasers. Um, I do think sometimes you do want to get the team picked with enough time before the WTC so it's you can start prepping things properly so it's like organizing practice weekends organizing everything else but like 
I guess it also might depend on, say, your like your tournament cycle might be different in different nations. Where I know in the UK, especially, so like autumn, beginning of winter, and then spring are kind of like the two main periods. So a lot of the time you would want to wait until some kind of spring, March, to pick the team because we've got like ITT, that's like February. We've got major like team events around that kind of time. So if you start picking your team in December, you've actually missed half the major team tournaments by that point. So yeah, you're you're picking people on false information, usually. Yeah, I think this smoothly transitions into another topic that is the team events. Mm. I think if you are a community that want to get better at WTC and the teams, you need to practice teams a lot. Yeah. And that means it doesn't necessarily mean that you cannot go for singles. I think playing singles is still valuable. So you still keep up to date and you do not get complacent. But teams, I would say there is way more benefit of you organizing like a practice weekend where you get 16 people in and play three 8v8 games over that weekend rather than every single one of those players going for singles event. Yeah. Or you can go level further, grab those 16 people, organize internal 8v8 game within your nation. Like do a, I don't know, playground draft where you have two captains that are choosing the team step by step or by armies or anything make players suggest compositions and just pick a random composition. There's many ways to do it. You can go for international scrims, which I think are the best way to improve, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Just find another nation, grab 8v8 on TTS, or if you have an opportunity, go for 8v8 team event, which I think there will be a little bit more this year. At least I know there will be one in January, February, March, and um, not May, uh, June. So there's not all of them will be available. There's also from Nation. So there's five that I know from top of my head. And I think those events will be very beneficial for you as, and your team to get new players accustomed to this system. And I think there's a lot to be gained from, especially in your playing within a team on like TTS screen. If you know that player is very wrong on a given matchup or you see him overestimating stuff because he played singles and he only knows that he usually won by a huge margin, is to not do, not go into correcting them before, but let them fail and let them see that they were wrong factually instead of you just telling them because they will not then realize it. I find it it's way better for to just play with your estimation table. If players say given table is the best for me, like, I mean, board, given map that they can play on, just give it to them. Let them prove it to you. Otherwise, let them fail. Or the same thing for team events, unless you're gunning to win a given event. But I think there's a lot to gain, if, especially if you're a smaller nation, to get exposed to newer ideas, to get exposed to how other teams play. So, and I think it was a big improvement, at least for Poland, that allowed us to find a few very new faces by just playing those team events and making people follow the team events more by going for the international ones or the 
8 v8s on tts because we made them a mandatory part of the team selection like mm. you need to attend those so that's my my opinion what's your take on this yeah and i think uh, obviously i keep going back to say the uk meta or uk scene where i think it's almost detrimental to our side that we don't have enough team events we we're getting more and they're becoming a lot more popular uh with zach doing more large-scale team events the actual that trickles down into more team events going out throughout the uk um we also obviously play different terrain, different tournament systems, way more singles. Our singles events are comparatively quite huge compared to quite a lot of other places. We get regular 300-man events. So the temptingness of ITC ranking sometimes does overcome people. Uh, rightfully so. If you're singles, that is the stuff you like doing. Um, but yeah, you have to play team events because they are so say i know the meta is changing tomorrow but if you based player ability on who's doing well at singles it is not going to make you the best team because the after you get past the three four five best factions you then start to struggle with players on certain lists who haven't got reps in because they don't take them to singles events so, yeah, I think team events are now going to be mandatory for every team, realistically, because it's it's also just like, and I think we've, we've discussed it loads of times, but it is like explaining, sorry, expanding how your army can be altered in different ways. So when we did say Enter the Matrix for the USA lists, I was looking at Naden's list from a, oh, Nids seem to be quite a good defensive list. So I don't know how good Naden's list is when actually yeah. Naden's built it from a offensive I'll go smash marine stat profiles and just avoid the two three big tank armies and I will actually go and smash those and that's that's where that oh you have to kind of maybe play the whole book out to realize what you have the potential kind of list for yeah yeah. And you need to see those estimations before the event when you do like those mock pairings to realize that there might be a spot for your army to excel at yeah. that you wouldn't normally even consider for singles because against top three armies you cannot build your army but for the remaining five you suddenly can and it means that your army is very viable because it might not counter the top dogs but it will play into the rest of the meta so i think giving the chance of players figuring out their armies and even maybe going for something different like forcing them to play play different armies to some extent like not telling them what the list they should bring and obviously many people will default then to some net listing that something was brought by other nation but you can also have the problem then that they will just copy what was done before. and But some people will start innovating. And suddenly you start innovating and that's what you need before the WTC. You need those people to be able to innovate with new armies, look into the codex and look for niche uses of the codex, which is very, very important at WTC because every army that is a surprise to opposing team creates a mayhem in the pairings, which, by the way, if you haven't watched or listened to the episode I've done with Pumbaa and John Lennon, 
about the pay ranks, you can see that both teams had no clue at one point. Mm. And exactly. that's very, very important because it only takes one majorly bad estimation to flip your whole pairing process because you are relying on a given matchup being good. So you might sacrifice something earlier to get that good matchup. And suddenly if that one flips, you're fucked. So making sure that your players get into that rhythm of trying out new stuff is very important, I think. And obviously you will have your faction specialists and stuff, but it is it is very important to not get stale with what you're trying is what you're seeing online and what is a cookie cutter solutions. And I think that's where also Aussies excel and why they have quite good results. Historically, Russia was really good at this as well. They had their own ideas and it pays off because especially nowadays in the era where everything is visible online, where we have a lot of media coverage, you know how to play against the best armies to some extent. Yes. But you yeah, will not know about the rest. Yeah. Like the England's always kind of done almost a different approach to it where the two years that they won it, it was very much a case that they took what was the eight best meta armies and practiced them to death rather than being innovative because every time England tries to be innovative, it doesn't always go very well uh, because it's it's always been a little bit too much echo chamber. So yeah, it's it's you can sometimes fall into the trap of trying to be too clever and you make mistakes, but then also you need to be clever. So for example... This year, I felt like England take, took eight good lists, but, say, Poland actually took lists that solved problems. So, whereas we can go, oh, we've got big gaps in our matrix that aren't good, but we've got loads of really great sections, at least you guys had, oh, actually, we actually have a pretty balanced and good matrix against almost everything because we've solved problems rather than necessarily, like, just taking yeah. brute force brute forceless and this is something that you can also do when trying out let's say tomorrow data slate comes out mm. then we have say two weeks we get first ideas what's the top of the meta etc bam this is a great moment to grab your teammates grab new people and say here's three armies try and figure out something in those armies that plays into those top dogs Try to figure out new lists within those armies. And it's even better if you grab a player and tell them if you are like unsure about their approach, you can give them an army that they never looked into or your community didn't look into, like Admech, Sisters, or Death Guard, or stuff like that, Jukari, whatever, armies that were on top of the meta, but suddenly with enough pop dogs getting cut down, you might get those weaker armies to be better. And then you can grab those players and just give them a homework where they need to find a solution. And they might not find it, but they will go to a conclusion that, well, I cannot find a solution for this given matchup, but here's where this army might be good into a certain other army. And I think this is a very important shift of the mindset that you can impose early on. 
and use all the changes in the meta to as an idea to test out. Maybe he or if you have enough players now, tomorrow balanced data slate comes out. Organize 8v8 within your community. Mm. Organize TTS. You grab two teams led by one of the more experienced players within your team that played at WTC and just ask them, okay, cool. So let's figure this one out together. And if you have those two eight-man teams, they will come out with different ideas if they do not share the information. Or it might be even better. Now you can do not necessarily need to do it within your own team. If you're a smaller community, say like Iceland, Luxembourg, those smaller communities can ask bigger community. Come on, let's play. Let's submit list, like say the data slide comes out tomorrow. Let's submit the lists, our eight-man roster on Monday to each other and do pairings on Wednesday. So we do not have time. Everyone needs to improvise on the spot, learn and try to figure it out. And those exercises will pay off in the later when you will need to do it at the WTC when the say, because probably in June, like late June, early July, we'll have another balance before the yeah, cup. As every year it was like it. So you better make use of every one of those balanced data slates now to do those 8v8s, to force people to play something new, because this is the moment where the ingenuity will pay off more because you do not get as much information from internet that is very much settled because before the slate, everything was settled. Like there was no nothing to improve, improve on, I think, at this point. Yes, yeah. So, like, I was going to ask you a question about this. When you talk about working with other nations, where do you feel like the cutoff is between learning something and improving both your teams or giving away information? So, say, for example, so if it, yeah, would yeah. you rather work with a, I don't want to say smaller team, but say a less, less prolific team that wins to bounce ideas off or say for example could england and poland work together well knowing that you might end up taking pretty similar lists but you have a advantage knowing about each other's bearings and everything else yeah and also i don't think this will work from like march onward mm. i because i cannot imagine although i would like to believe so cannot imagine both teams would not try to game it in some to some extent yes yeah and i think this works better if you have a very like the seed one team collaborating with seed two teams mm. because you are still not scared of them per se like if they really prepare for you sure but you can still say a cutoff of collaboration like three weeks before the list deadline, two sure. weeks before the list deadline. And then you share the information, but the last steps of you figuring out where to go from there, then happens. I think the collaboration between the top teams is like fine till April, hmm. like because that's where you can start hiding stuff, you can start figuring stuff, but this is still be before next data slate. A lot of the ideas will still surface from single events or other team events that you go to. Mm -hmm. 
But I think at least the eight V8s on TTS are insanely impactful. As long as you make sure that both teams probably go for a mix of veterans and newer faces. Because sure. if you know that, say, if we played against you now on TTS, we went for four veterans for new players. You still, there's a player problem if you have only new players, they might feel abandoned to some extent or thrown to the wolves. But this way you can make sure that they have someone to bounce ideas off and the remainder of the top players within your nation and help out those newer players by, I don't know, playtesting, running the, the ideas through them and make sure you get like a coaching even regimen within your community, which I think is the most important thing to make sure that you get better. And I think that's where Poland is really good, that we do not have any coaching services within our nation. And we just try helping each other sure, yeah. to get better because we have a smaller community. So we need to somehow work around it. Uh, and I know when I say that, uh, probably some countries like Belgium, Iceland, or Luxembourg scream internally, but well, it is what it is. Yeah. Uh, what's your take on it? Because I know you weren't very keen on the collaboration. Me personally, I've always pushed for it. It's always been a when when England were doing well, it was a case of well, why would we give away secrets? But I'm I'm more of a person who I do believe iron sharpens iron. So yeah. if we had a practice weekend with Poland running up to this, we could have podiumed because we might have been able to bounce certain ideas off, like you guys did with Scotland, where obviously you don't feel a, necessarily a threat from them, so you're able to share freely. But yeah, it, it's always going to be difficult because it's probably going to be somewhat one-sided with how you do the information. One team will probably get... So say, for example, you are the reigning defending champions. Anybody who would work with you... Uh, you are more likely to give away information than you are to maybe get information. So it then becomes of, while it might be beneficial for, say, England, because we'll learn a lot from you guys, even though we are a top team, it might be a case of, well, for you, there's no there's no real upside to it. Uh, not that I'm saying... I think there's still some upside. I think there's still some upside. I think there's the point of even if you bounce ideas of each other and have a for a conversation like we did with Scotland, like sitting down with Ines and Brian, those are phenomenal players, right? You yeah. still are going through very good ideas. And I think the main difference usually between the seed one and two teams is the amount of prep people can put in and amount of like the excellent like very very good tournament winning players that they have that can figure out the game on slightly higher level so even working with such teams that are c2 but still have very good players or it is still beneficial for you because you might not i know it might be very blunt but you might not benefit from four out of eight of their players within their team but the remaining four will still give you something and obviously, as a team that's very high in their ranks, like Poland, Germany, you guys, Aussies, USA, we might not get as much 
but we will still probably like get one out of eight armies. And that's what we're missing sometimes. And that's something that we might not see. And it might have been enough for like the Pyra Cup that we organized that we saw Deathwatch, Deathwatch was shit in the pairings and that it didn't fill any roles. And that was enough. Like we didn't get direct like clues from them, but we had more information because we weren't stuck in our own pot where we just shared eco chamber. That's the name. And I yeah. think the eco chamber thing is the worst. Mm. Yeah, that, that will limit your chances quite a lot. I think if I were to push it as an idea for any nation to do it, I think you'd have to kind of structure it correctly, where I've always wanted to do, if we did work with a Poland or whoever, if it's another top team, we'd identify somewhat the four to five top armies and go, right, nobody can take those. Yeah. Everybody else, right, everybody takes eight fringe armies. And both teams might then go, actually, two or three of those are actually pretty good. If, say, for example, we'd have taken Orcs, you might have looked at it and gone, ah, actually, Orcs might be useful in this pairing matrix. Or you could have taken, say, your like your Dark Angels yeah. list, and we could have gone, ah, actually, that Dark Angel is pretty good. So yeah. I think if you structure it properly and, like you say, give enough time to, you still have time to tweak or change your ideas it's good, but yeah, just you got to do it properly, I think. Yeah, I, I, I genuinely agree with that. I I do think it's it was more prominent this year than it will be to some extent next year. Yes. With the meta more settled, you will probably have better idea what is the eighth army, or at least we'll know be able to know what armies are good choices in that spot. Yeah. Mm. But yeah, what do you think about the idea of forcing people to play other factions, though? So yeah, this will be a relatively big topic, I guess. So for your year's prep, armies becomes quite a big aspect of it because your team both needs faction specialists and flexible people. Because if, like you said earlier, if you're a phenomenal Eldar player and then Eldar come the event are awful, you can't play anything else. You're a great player, but if you can't play anything else, you're useful to, you're useless to the team. I think the other main aspect of it is and it's, some, it's something that I don't always see enough of for any team that I've been around is throughout the year, especially now where data slates are a little bit easier to learn, it's there's no excuse you go into the world team championships that you don't know what everything does vaguely at least so i think a big thing is even if you're not playing loads of armies read them all learn them all like you need to know what these vaguely do the amount of times i've seen people go oh i i, I think this is 13 to 14 points in pairings i'm like do you know have you ever played against x have you have you read the codex do you know how have you put them on the table once where you go, you need to be able to understand what everything does. And I think that's, it's, this whole game is about get, gathering information, especially when it comes to matrix development. Why would you not put in the prep to learn everything in the game? I know there's a lot in there, but at least have a vague idea what everything does. 
So even if you're not able to play loads of different armies, you should know what everything does to the point where even if you were to have to maybe pick up an army later on, if somebody else is, say, a faction specialist in, say, two armies, he can go, well, I'm taking Thousand Sons with this list. But you know what? I also play Dark Eldar really well. I think this is a really good Dark Eldar list. Uh, Pumba knows Dark Eldar really well. He can actually move on to that. So I think if you expand your horizons with what you know about the game, it should make it easier to move on to certain factions if you have to. But then again, especially when it comes to, say, singles and teams, there is still... Say, for example, I've just taken Nids to two events knowing that there's Eldar everywhere and it's an awful matchup. It's still really important to take those armies to see how they do in all the other matchups that are available out there. Where, especially when the game's a bit more balanced, hopefully, fingers crossed tomorrow, um, where you are still getting the reps in with those armies to get a more accurate matrix. So I think it is useful to get people to be using those maybe slightly more fringe armies, no matter what their result is going to be at a singles or even teams event. It's useful to get reps in with everything. But yeah, I think you need to be a specialist and also somewhat slightly flexible. Just And I think this is something that I'm quite the demand about. I don't think there's necessarily as much of a faction specialism. There's playstyle specialism. Yes. yes that, that's my take on it. I know, for example, Aussies think differently. But I think if I were to give, for example, to Skark a melee army, I know he will not perform. That's yeah. just not his playstyle. And I like you guys knew that you shouldn't give Vic Eldar to some extent because he likes more defensive calculated play. Yeah. So Thousand Sons is more of his playstyle instead of an army that's meant to score high. And it just makes sense to even at one point identify which kind of playstyle a given army is and then be able to give it to a given playstyle specialist. Because faction specialists, obviously, if they are flexible enough, they can play attacker, defender role, because they know the faction. But I think playstyle specialism gives you more of an option to shift from one army to another. And I think last edition, you could see it a lot with melee armies, with people like shifting from, at one point, Jukari, then going to, say, Blood Angels, then going to aggressive Harlequins, then going to War Eaters. Like those armies were had something in common. You probably could have put Nids somewhere in there. But like, go for go for the throat armies. And I think even though those armies were top top dogs, they shared something in their playstyle. Mm -hmm. So for example, in Star Trek we have Anthony, right? He calls himself violence because he likes those more aggressive armies, right? But this is his playstyle of choice. And it's not necessarily bound to an army. It's bound to what's effective in a given point at, at the game. And he'll be able to play those armies way more effectively because he knows better how to handle risks connected with pushing. And you have money for that, that he will know better where to just push harder. And yeah, so I think it's very important to not have like one faction players. Especially in, in the game where if army is good or not depends on one point high contrarian warriors, right? Mm. True. Yeah. 
yeah, the game changes so much now that you just have to be super flexible. Like long gone are the days when I played in fifth edition and it was okay, I'll play my army for a year and a half at tournaments and it didn't change. Whereas now it changes every three months. So yeah. Yeah. So I know you guys aren't as big on screens. I think you guys do not play as much of the TTS screens. If I'm correct. Internally, there is a group who plays a lot of TTS. Um, there is, there's a bit of a divide with us where some of us prefer TTS, some of us prefer in-person games, and it's trying to bridge those two groups a little bit was uh, part of the what we were trying to do towards getting ready for this year's WTC. Um, it's an interesting one because no matter if you play face-to-face -face or... Actually, this is an important thing that I... When you're trying to gather information, always play a game all the way through because there's nothing worse than having the wrong information you give to a captain when you've only played... Like, if you have a somewhat smashable army, say, like, Care Space Marines, and say with the obliterators and whatever, if you only play two or three turns, drop down, kill six, seven hundred points of your opponent and go, oh, the game's over, let's move on and do another game, then you've missed out on the actual final scoring of a game. So when you're doing your prep, I would actually advocate for playing full games if you can. Um, also, because it gives time for defensive players to actually figure out how they can scrape points towards the end of games where... You and might what go, are the win conditions? How exactly. to hide? Because some some armies, like say Death Watch, this year they had serious breaking points where you came out, did a load of damage, but then if you lost your whole army back at the end of the game, you didn't have anything. So your opponent started racking up five, ten, fifteen, twenty points. You've just now gone from seventeen three to thirteen seven. So, yeah, I think that was. Um, it's a little bit because TTS does take a bit longer than things, uh, regular face to face games. You do sometimes have the issue of TTS, you don't finish full games because it, it nobody wants to sit around. We like the hobby a lot, but people don't play five, six hour games, in fairness. Um, but yeah, like scrims with other nations is not something we've done very much in the past. I think it's now that we have a new captain, it would be interesting to see where we go with that. Yeah, for me, I think this is the best thing you can do as a nation before you start hiding your ideas. Sure. Because this way you can... And I think this is a good way to see how people can crumble and deal with mental problems even during the game. If you are watching it, sometimes it goes wrong and you see them just give up on the mm -hmm. TTS scrim you know they might not be a good choice for the team, even though they might be very skillful and bring in singles scores. Yes. Because singles, it's win or lose, but in teams, you need a little bit different mindset. And we had few people like that, that we realized during the test that some of them just do not have what it takes mentally, to some extent. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know. This is the thing that I would advocate the most. I like Literally, tomorrow, data slate drops, play screams already now this is the best moment this is a moment for you to get familiar with the chaos 
and get more experience with it. Try to figure out what's the meta within those four days. Put in the time. Obviously, most people will be tired. Most people will not want to do it, but you'll also realize who wants to do it, who is willing to put the time and get better. And this is very important as well, because at one point during the time where it's getting closer and closer to the event itself, those players who will put in the time will be very important because you will not have much time. So you know you, you who you can rely on and you can like scout it beforehand. Obviously, it doesn't really apply always, but this is, I think, for me, something that I found very impactful. And something that we touched upon before, what's your take? We said about a little bit of faction specialism and the playstyle specialism. You said also that you want like half and half within the team. What's your, like, why for people listening? Because I agree with it, by the way, but I want to, like, hear you out. Why do you think so? Half and half with, as in, people, army or playstyle? You mentioned army, like, yeah, whatever you meant. So, how do I put this? I think now with the way the games shift, flexibility is important. But it was very apparent that certain armies, if you say, let's take WTC that happened this year. If you have a really good orc player, he can show you the value of that orc army. If you have a really good Thousand Suns player, they show you the value of those armies. If you have bit players who maybe have the army, but they dabble with this and then they take this to another event, then they swap armies again. Jack of all trades, master of F all. It then becomes you maybe aren't exploring the full codex. So say, for example, Nids are dropping this weekend. I play Nids. Matt Robertson plays Nids. We're going to have a weekend where we literally try everything in the codex and then build, rebuild, build, rebuild the faction trying to figure out what's everything. And it normally starts with, for me anyway, I always go down the most extreme and then like narrow it down. So I'm going to, my first game is going to be with six norms because try it. It might work for teams. It's mm -hmm. probably going to be trash, but fine. So I think having that faction where you know a book all the way through. So for example, Vic, Vic with Thousand Sons this year, he kept account of how many times he changed his list. And I think by the time he submitted it, he was on 23 different versions of his list because he tried everything and he played every game possible with it and his results showed. If you then have people who, leading up to the event, swap armies six times, then they're not going to be prepared enough. They might be a fantastic player, but when they actually get to the event, they haven't had the reps in that a faction specialist has had. But with the way the game shifts, it's very difficult to... Even if you play three armies really, really well, they might not come up. They might not make the top eight. There are so many factions now. And say an issue that we have in this country is because singles is far more dominant than teams, 
you get certain people who learn team meta, sorry, singles meta, and play more single viable armies than you do necessarily team armies. So there, there sometimes is less, it's less rewarding to be playing Necrons when you know that, to be honest, you can grind points out of every game. You might get eight or nine out of everything because you're a really, really good player, but that's not fun to take singles because you're probably losing most of your games. You might go three and three. Uh, so, yes. But when that comes to team events, it's a lot better. So, yeah, I would say I prefer to have faction specialists, but that only works when your armies come up as being useful. Yeah. This is a problem. Like, yeah. For example, we had our guy who was playing Tau. Like, at that point, he was a Dark Elder and War Eater specialist. Uh, yeah. Myself, I was what Dark Eldar and Sisters specialist, mm. also oof. Yeah. And like, this can be an issue with a given army, obviously, and you cannot anticipate it when you choose the team early. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you can then shuffle the armies, but I agree with you. If you have a player that can just dive in into one army and bring the best out of it, it's very impactful, but I think it applied to a lot of players this year, and I think it applies every year. If you get a good grasp of what's good in the meta, you'll usually have those six players early on a very good army, and then you'll have all the remaining staff trying to figure out the remaining two armies with the two remaining players. At least from my experience, it kind of looks like it. Like you have very good idea of like top four or five, and then you gradually figure out the next steps with the help of the whole community. Yeah, I agree. But yeah. Uh, so you also mentioned when we were doing the bullet points before the show that you wanted to talk about playing singles versus teams mm-hmm. what you really had in mind because we already covered it to some extent because obviously it came up plenty of times in previous questions but sure anything specific you had in mind so for me teams has to be the priority because you are literally going to a team event it would make sense practicing teams is beneficial for playing in teams. Um, singles now, there is still something to be said about player ability from people who do well at singles. Like, I think the, if when the game is more balanced, say towards the end of ninth edition, you could see that player skill was a little bit more represented in how well people did at singles. Now, right now, that is not the case because it is just, you can have a bad player playing Eldar and they will still probably come away with a top 10 finish. It just kind of is what it is. So when the meta is in a good place, I still, I would still value somewhat of somebody who does consistently well at singles. They don't have to be podium every time, but if they're using even just slightly off factions, you want them to be doing top 10 performances still count for me personally. Uh, that's maybe an old school ETC idea. Um, but like in the newer system, like someone going 4-1 or 
or maybe into yeah. shadow run with a lesser faction you know that they are pretty good probably although obviously in singles you can make an argument that within what six rounds you play two very good games yes with the size that events and this is why i maybe say it's an old school style of thinking because it used to be say for england events we'd have 60 man events and 20 of those people applied for the england team because it was predominantly midlands and northwest uh so then it became of winning those events was a shootout whereas now when you have a 300 man event you you can either hit somebody really good really early or you can for lack of a better word play five tin cans go five and oh and then then you go into the shadow rounds or make the final cut and that's when you actually start playing compared really difficult no. games so maybe singles doesn't apply as much as it used to but i still think for getting face-to-face -face games even against so weaker players there's still a value in just vaguely knowing what your army even just the basic stats yeah. of certain things is still useful like you know oh even if somebody brings i don't know a 10-man terminator squad and i start shooting two Tyrannifexes into it. At least I know now that through repetitions, I know that actually the likelihood is I'm not killing that. So I need to do the change of game plan. So I think just getting reps with armies or getting games in is just useful. But yes, I think the quality of tournaments now that they are so big has lowered. So I would still heavily weight team events because I think one thing that, and I think we talked about it earlier, is with team events, performing at the team event is really important, but it's how you do the prep is almost yeah. as important, if not more important. If you're a nightmare to deal with, you're bouncing around armies, you don't turn up to practice weekends, your matrix is awful, you theoried half of your matrix because you didn't actually go and play the games, you didn't, whatever. If you if you're difficult, you could be the best player at the weekend. You shouldn't be picked because you just you make it so much more difficult for everybody else around you. So I think that's yes. also something that people need to be wary of when applying for teams. Is it's the prep that's actually more important than sometimes the actual event. Yeah. And also for singles, you can even approach the singles games in the team's mindset. I think Matt Morisoli played Warmaster when he, I think he was playing against Quinton Johnson from Art of War. I didn't, maybe someone else. I remember hearing it on some kind of podcast. I might be completely wrong with what I'm saying. Like he realized with Chaos Knights, he cannot play that matchup. So he will just turn that game into testing how many points can he scrape of Eldar. Yeah, I'll be honest. I do that all the time. It's just like, or even just, you know, something's a bad matchup. Because sometimes you'll look at score, you look at score differentials in singles and go, "Oh, I twenty nil that, so it's that's a good result for me." Mm -hmm. Or sorry, I seventeen three that. But there's a difference between players trying to chase a game and players playing for points, like we've discussed many, many times. Where you might go with Chaos Knights. Oh, he took fixed, where he took assassinate and bring it down, and I'll go. I'm going to reserve everything that I can. I'm going to hide loads that I can and go, I got him to seven or eight points. Okay, I know I can do this now. 
or I know yeah. what this point is for now. And there's also another thing that I think is very important. If you have a player that's newer or someone you are considering for your team, make them write a, like some kind of a written report from those TTS games or the single games. But I do not mean like a battle, full-on battle report. You might just point out mistakes or what could have been played differently in that given game. But by doing that, you are forcing them to think about it. I think this is very important that sometimes I see people only think about the games they've lost. And I think this it's even more important for you to learn from also the games you've won to figure out what your opponent could have done differently because usually you have that one step forward of, of deploying, say, a little bit more backwards to not get hit by something that they didn't see. But you then analyzing after the game, you can see this. And uh, just basically like you do with any sport or anything, just look back at what you've done, what could have been done differently, try to figure out like you play test games within your team. At some point, you are playing together that one game. You can even after the game talk with your opponent and try to figure this one out. Yes. There is many ways to figure this one out. Or if you were playing on stream and I don't know, you can ask someone that was watching your game what their input was or what do they have to say about it. Or say, like at UKTC events, I, when I was referring those top tables that I would watch over the whole time, I would then have a conversation with both players. Like, why did you do this, not that? And it didn't mean, I didn't mean it in a like mean way. I just wanted to see their thought process. Because usually the thought process itself can be very descriptive of how person will behave and learn moving forward. But the that's my take. Do you have anything else about the preparation? Should we like outline the steps that I think how teams should approach it now? Or do you have anything else? Yeah. So when you are talking about like preparation, are you talking about a team as a whole, what a captain is looking for, or what an individual should be doing? Because I guess they're three kind of different things. I, I think it's all of those, like you cannot really say that those are not adjacent. Oh, I cannot find the word in English. Oh yeah, I'm just like so but... um, mutually exclusive. Um, yes, thanks. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so I, I think I... they are connected. Mm. As a captain, you are looking for the best for you, of your team, and you want to get players to improve. Right, yeah. because you want to get as good of a team. So those things are strictly correlated and not exclusive. So you need to make sure that you create the inflow of newer faces or newer thoughts within the team or improve the overall preparation, get people more familiar with the format. Because if you get individuals better, it will then directly impact how good the team is because they are part of the team. They will give their inputs. And if you can coach them, then they will obviously be better at what they are doing. So so I guess, right, if we're uh, making a synopsis of this episode, from a captain's perspective, note of, uh, like make note of people who are doing well on your tournament scene and approach them about the event. Some people don't know that it exists. So when you're at events, as a captain, be like, have you heard about Team England? 
we've seen that you can do well at events, especially if you play them. For example, me and Josh went to an event at this weekend and there were a pair of brothers who both finished in the top 10. Me and Josh played the same guy and he was really, really good. And it's one of those, okay, give him contact information. He's now in our Team England group chat. We've just got another two players. Excellent. So, yeah, captains, notify when you see good players. Let them know about it. Keep an overall track of how everyone's doing at events and teams. Try and get them to go to teams. Try and coach them through teams, I guess. Learning how to do matrices, learning how to do play styles, I guess. From an individual's perspective, learn everything in the game. I can't, for me, that's the biggest one. I just, it makes it so much easier when a balance update comes through and you're like, okay, they've tweaked, tweaked this, this, and this, and this, but I know what everything does in the book. So I can actually now see that this works this way. Or when you go into a pairings matrix or, sorry, into a game in teams that you're leading up to the event and you go, I've never played Necons before. I don't know what they do. Well, if you know what they do, then you'd know at least vaguely where you are. For me, a big part is accountability. Like you just, the point you just discussed about when you are playing a game, how many times have we played a game, whether it's singles or teams or anything, can you go, I walked away with 19-1 in that game, but actually, had he done this, this or this, actually, that's a lot closer. Being honest with yourself, being, okay, I should beat that, but realistically, how should you beat that? Because... Did you have the correct game plan going into that game? It's all well and good saying I beat that 13-7, but actually you were meant to beat that by more had you got the reps or uh, more game time into those certain matchups and knowing the matchups. Like a Manny, can you push those matchups? Do you know where to get your points from in every game? Do you know how to put games away where you get to the point where I know I'm 15 plusing, 15 plusing this every time because I've played this matchup. Um, I think visibility is also important, like you discussed. Doing mini battle reports. Like a captain has to look after, if he's trying to select from a squad of 20, it's a lot easier to see how well somebody's doing when you're very pretty vocal about it. So like put up tournament reports and be honest about them. Oh, I went five and one, but actually this game, this probably shouldn't have been a win had he known the matchup better or do TTS events where you are honest about your results. Do scrims with other nations because you might be in your echo chamber or small bubble where you go, well, this is the meta. And then you go to the European events and go, actually, the meta is completely different. And how many times have we seen that? Germany's list look totally different. Poland's list look very different. Australia's list look very different. USA's looks lists look very different. They're all phenomenal teams with phenomenal armies, but they all came to very, very different conclusions, even though we're all looking at the exact same source material. So yeah. I think it's so much to do, but... It's just you're going to the you're representing your country. You're going to teams the the biggest team event in the world for like prestige. I would say not necessarily the biggest numbers, but yeah, you would do you'd be doing yourself a disservice if you didn't fully break down your play style, fully break down all the armies, fully break down your abilities, capabilities, and then also it's a team. 
work on how you work with other teammates, work on how active you are with doing prep, going to singles, going to teams events. I guess that's... And be also transparent about it. Mm. That's something that I, I find that sometimes you need to go silent for a month because I don't know, you're moving, something happened in your life. Tell that, say that, be yeah. like, sorry guys, I will not be taking part in any of this. I need to take care of something else. I'll be back at a given time. Being very direct and transparent with what's happening is also very impactful. But going back to what, what you mentioned, I think what you should put emphasis on, and I really think so, is that you should pick your starting playing eight later like say April around, maybe May, depending where you can afford to make sure that you have that internal competition still for those spots. You might do like earlier cuts, like choosing first three players, say in January, because you know those will still work on, but this also means that more people will be fighting for the remaining spots, so it might even sometimes make it better. Obviously, some people will be disappointed, will maybe say that, ah, now that a player playing Eldar is in, I'm playing Eldar, I will not be in. Sure, it might be also discouraging, but I think pushing the date to later and making sure that you get all those newer players as much experience as possible going for all the team events. When you have a team event that you are not really meaning to win, maybe you can bring, for example, to five-man teams bring two teams, the team that's going to win the event and the team that's going to learn, and you assign one of the players that's very good to lead them and teach them. There's a lot that you can do, and I think winning at WTC is more about improving your own community and how you coordinate your own community and how you share information and just work as a unit than the individual eight players that come to the event. Because everything that's happening in the background will improve the team. Competition will improve the team. The flow of information will improve the team. The information about armies, everything will have a substantial impact. And you should focus more on that, of improving the wider team if you can, because you might not be thinking about winning the event this year, but within two years, you might have a good enough structure of more players that they will learn. They will go next year. They might play in like mercenary team or they might be in the wider range and they will watch over the games. They will get familiar with the system. Then they will. it will mean that if they were not playing, they will not be as stressed if they get to play because they know the whole system, etc., etc. You can ease people into the format. And I think it's very important as well. Anything to add, or should we go into questions? Uh, yeah, just very quickly on that last point. If you are not selected to play, definitely stay involved with your team. Granted, if there's some bust up or whatever, that it is what it is. But still involved with your team and offer to be a coach or offer to go to the event because I think getting to the event is a big part of the learning experience of how WTC works and I think it will make you a much better applicant for the team the following year knowing how it works how many and times also have we there's it? and also sometimes there are dropouts like the case with Germany this year or Scotland so then you might be able to play in another team like this was case exactly. with Ben Jurek in from the 
America stuff, I mean USA stuff, or if you have more players, then you can make sure that somebody dropping out will not be an issue. Like we had a dedicated non-player that was supposed to swap in into any other player if they had to go drop out. And he was keeping in touch with all the armies to make sure that he will be viable player of all those armies. So exactly, yeah. Yeah, questions. So the first question from and those are from Discord, by the way. So Paul, if you are watching this and you want to drop questions or like suggestions for next episodes, please join our Patreon and our Discord. We got the idea about this episode actually from the Discord. So if you give some ideas, we might touch upon them. I will be trying, for example, to grab England versus USA as well for the pairings episode, like I've done with Poland versus USA, because I think that one was also very interesting pairing. Yeah, That is very good to dissect, because I think the draws are the most interesting to actually analyze, yeah. or like the very small wins, not the smashes. And... Uh, if you have any suggestions, then drop in there. You might ask questions. You might get to know a little bit more. Uh, but anyway, to the questions. Uh, first one, what's the process of building a reliable matrix, especially in a scenario where you know other teams' lists will likely be different from the ones you would have tested with? And I think I'll answer this one. I don't think there is really a very good way of doing this. You need to just assume that you are correct with your meta calls and whatever you see in the, on the internet. And at the very beginning, you, if you are doing it before the event, you need to just shoot in the dark and trust your guts what's good. But when the event comes and you have the estimation, some of the games you've played before will translate to the newer armies or the armies that they brought, the list that they brought, usually there will be a huge overlap. But the suddenly what you can do then during the matrix is identify which matchups you are unsure and play those. And this is the most important. And even if one player, say, plays it, then he can give like good feedback how to play that matchup. So if you keep the conversation flowing within your team, suddenly it might be enough of one player playing it. If you have other player who's good at just from the information he gets, visualizing how the game will develop, it might be sufficient for them to play the game well, if only one of you played it before and get some information out of it. Um, how much of army construction, construction and choice comes before the matrix is done? So I assume this is the matrix that you estimate before. And how much would be to fill the holes in team's composition once the matrix is established? And you can, and once the matrix is established, and you can evaluate your matchups more objectively. Oh boy, this is a loaded one. You want to <laughs> take it? Yeah, I'll, I'll touch upon it a little bit, and you can obviously finish it off. I think the way we've looked at it in the past is you have one we had one ginormous matrix where we kind of vaguely assumed all the potential competitive armies. So I think it was like 20, like it was 21 way. Obviously you have some factions where you, you have like say three Eldar on there where it's Eldar MSU, Eldar single Wraith Knight, Eldar double Wraith Knight. You have those kind of builds and you just kind of look at the, you try and do the best of your estimations what a full matrix looks like 
and you can gain some information from that. I would say if you're looking at the actual eight, answering that question, it's almost you want to get 50-50, like half of it, where you kind of assess what the meta is, and that's what you build the matrix. Then from there, the other half is identifying where the problems now are and trying to fix those problems. So say, for example, you might pick eight armies and say this year, maybe some teams went GSC is an awful matrix column. Okay, well, now we need to change two or three or four of our armies to then have a case where GSC is not a problem anymore. USA did it. Poland did it with different answers in, say, their Dark Angels and their even you could argue like your tower was probably to fix certain issues in your matrix. So I would say you've got to have a good start, but you are going to have to fix it. So it is almost like both and, and there's also one thing that you need to look into. And I think is the distribution of the good and bad matchups in your team cannot be heavily centered about one army that you are playing against or one army in your team usually so you can make sure that you can get the good matchups of, out of more than one match opposing army but this is more advanced but you can try to figure it out with more time mm. uh, that how would matrix building translate to singles and list construction do you want to take that one uh i think for that, it kind of depends a little bit on where the matrix is for singles. Right now, you could maybe look at it and go, well, Eldar everywhere, so therefore I'll look at Thousand Suns because GSC has died off a little bit. Thousand Suns usually struggled into GSC, so you would then take you'd struggle to take Thousand Suns, even though Thousand Suns, if played very correctly with certain lists, can beat Eldar. I think when the game becomes a lot more balanced with factions being a lot more viable, I think a matrix is useful. You can then look at, if you do a matrix of all the armies all together, and you're able to see that your faction is good against predominantly most of those what might be top singles meta armies, yeah, then that's useful because that actually helps you tweak your army into those. But that's very difficult to do a lot of the time, I think. Yeah, I, I don't think it translates that much. It can give you a better understanding yeah. where are the weaknesses within your army. And maybe yeah. if you run it through like events attendance, like if you know the players coming and what armies they are playing, you can make some list design choices within your list to tailor into that. But I don't think it necessarily comes down to metrics. Uh, no. I, I don't think most of the very good teams' armies will not translate to singles, especially in a very volatile and harmful meta as this one. And yes. even most metas, I would say. I agree. Uh, what's the first thing you do to start prepping after WTC? What do the timelines look like for prep so far out from the event? So first of all, you need to make sure you do not burn out. Yeah, yeah. Drown your sorrows if your team didn't do very well. Uh, get the five stages of grief out the way and then uh, start building from there again. Um, I don't know. For me, I was like, 
if I were to be choosing the Polish team, I would have literally started 8v8 scrims tomorrow as the balance slate drops. That would be my first. I would just start finding new people, like ask around in our communities whether there's maybe someone that's promising and just start out banging team games or those good players. I will just ask them to play against other, like maybe say we have a new player. I would ask them, okay, so let's play. Let's make you play against Duda, Guto and Puma. So, so he just gets games into good players. Other players then can give info, and we can see how they improve. Because, it's, and that's where I would start. Maybe not necessarily myself. I don't think I need. If it comes to me, I don't need that much preparation at this point. But I can help others to help me out later. Sure. Yeah. Like actually going back to. Run? Something yeah. that we actually discussed earlier, and it's something you just said there that's interesting, where actually you might, for singles, sometimes the detriment to single is somebody does consistently well at singles, and then you bring them to a practice weekend, and you put them against your top players, for example, like you just discussed there, and it's there where you sometimes find out are they as good as they are make it made out to be with singles results um, where you've got to assume that basically everyone that goes to WTC is predominantly tournament winners or some of the best players in their country. So the player skill level is so high that if you're constantly going 5-0 and at events with low player skill, you're now going to an event where you're now going to play seven games against some of the best players in the world. So it's it's really it's difficult to assess like how good somebody is until you get them into those top level matchups from consistently good players on your team, I guess. Yeah, yeah. that was just a point from Uh Another question. What are the early mistakes that are difficult to recover from later on and what are easy to fix later on? I don't... I This is... A hard one. I think the early mistake that's difficult to recover from is if you actually choose the team too early and suddenly me, people lose interest. For me, it's oh, I, I'll focus on singles because the the the, the game's going to change before teams, so I'll worry about my teams list next spring or next the balance update. There's no point looking at these armies because the balance updates in June. Well, no, you need to know all the armies back to front. So when the balance update comes, you you swap onto your army almost instant instantly. Don't take two, three weeks after the balance update comes out to sort your army. You should know where it vaguely is anyway. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's what we were doing in the ninth. And that is we had we were tracking like the strength of armies within teams and what they were their roles were, and with every balance data slate, we would swap it, like switch positions, yes. bump some armies, drop some armies. So when the what was it, Nephilim dropped, I think in 2022, I think it yes. was Nephilim just before WTC. We just shuffled a few armies and realized which ones are worth looking into and which ones we should just drop instantly. Yes, because yeah. of the changes. So that I think... can be done in advance. You don't have to wait for that. 
I think some people fall yeah. into the trap of, oh, the game changes so much, there's no point playing this. No, 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 no. Do it now. Like, you can't yeah. recover from that. Then, does the new NITS codex excite you from a team's perspective? Are there detachments you don't think are the strongest for singles, but could have a good team's role? That's for you, Nathan. I haven't read the book. So, from what I've read of it, uh, I really, really like the book because none of it stands out right now as being absolutely ridiculous. You know, sometimes when you read a new codex and go, I might be completely wrong, I haven't actually put it on table yet, but it is a little bit Sometimes, I don't know, when we saw Eldar, everybody instantly went, this is the most broken thing ever brought out. Uh, and you've got to remember that Eldar are so ridiculous now after already having basically two updates. Um, the Nid book, because it has one of the, I would say it's probably top three, top five product ranges, there's so many things you can try in that book that they have the most amount of flexibility with potentially being a team list where you can look at a monster heavy list you can look at a hybrid type list you can look at the like middle range guys so your warriors your abners the middle sized dudes or you can look at horde lists so say for example there were multiple well-performing nid armies some were at the wtc some were monster heavy like nadens some were the horde heavy like the australians so Brodies. So, yeah, I think Nids will always excite me for teams because they're one of the few armies that still can do hordes quite well. They've now got detachments abilities that support hordes, which is great. Um, I think Crusher Stampede looks a bit trash, but we'll have to see. Uh, it seems like you've just lost some of the bonus. You might as well just take the regular Tyranid detachment because you still gain the double yeah. dollar pain um so yeah i think nids for me like i'm gonna spend a weekend with robo i'm gonna spend a weekend with manny and just try and hash out as many games as possible and try and figure out that book there's so many good options the models are great uh apart from the new biovores i think they're absolutely awful but that's yeah I, I don't like those as well these non-tyranid models yeah anyway uh, what makes a list flexible for table choice? Is it power level or a specific army strength? And I think there's one specific thing that makes army kind of not care about table choice, and that's its footprint. If you have armies with insanely small or insanely high footprint, you can kind of live with all the choices. I think usually the armies that are indifferent to the table choice are neither a very shooty or melee armies. You need to, it's mostly hordes, maybe some kind of MSU with lower footprint. Those armies can play on like a little bit more open boards, obviously, depending what they play against. I think we didn't, we don't have many flexible armies for table choices usually. Like this year, it was guard. Like there is just reason because your shooting is out of Indirect. line of sight. Well, last CK year we, okay. yeah, CK you cannot hide it. Okay. Yeah, with in 2022 we had Howler queens like that, and we had Tyrannid warriors in our in our composition. Two armies that just didn't give a fuck about their table choice. 
yeah. and it was very impactful. But I don't think there's necessarily a pattern there. Maybe you know you have something to add. Um, I guess Titanic at the moment kind of wants light tables. Combat armies predominantly usually want heavy tables, but the way that the WTC tables kind of work out is actually some of the heavier tables have objectives in the open, so they end up being not viable for certain armies. But yeah, I don't think there's many, there's not many armies that can just go, I'll play on any table. Uh, like you say, anything just with a small footprint. So in certain, I think it's also mashup dependent. Yeah. Obviously against, against if you play custodes and they've got no shooting, then you can deploy however the hell you want. But you might struggle to dig them out of terrain if they can just score from behind walls. So I think it's a little bit more matchup dependent for me. Yeah, I, I don't think there is a rule of thumb. There are like, I think it's mostly footprint dependent, but it's only on the most extreme cases where it that really doesn't change much. Yeah, like Thousand uh, Suns, as long as you can hide Magnus, are usually pretty good on most tables if you take one or two rhinos. Yeah. Normally okay, but yeah, it's still low knobs. Yeah, low knobs. Yeah. Uh, besides playing game out for differential, what are ways single players can improve their games from team's perspective? I think we touched upon a little bit on this. Relatively, yeah. I, I don't think playing singles usually gives you a better play for differential. No. I, I mean, playing differential doesn't necessarily translate to you being better at singles. Or because sometimes you need to just push for lucky charges and stuff. I, I think the main thing you need to do is be aware that your opponent will not play. If you are playing for differential, your opponent will not be playing for differential as well. So you need to caveat all the plays they do just with that asterisk above that this might not be how a good player plays it if they know they are losing that matchup. And you, yeah. after the game, you might just need to sit down and figure it out what they could have done differently if they knew that they are losing it. Sure. And something that we also touched upon, what do you think about practicing with teams who are in your seat versus teams who are in different seats? How do you balance the risk of competing for a place, same seat, or getting placed in the same spot, different seats? We touched upon this a lot, I think, mm. quite lengthy. And I think we focused more on the part of competing for a place. Sure. I think getting placed in the same pod with different seeds is more of an interesting case mm. because this creates another layer that if you know what the other team is doing, you might be mind gaming by doing the very next step because you know what they will defend with so you can improve your preparation but it can be kind of wonky with both teams doing it but i think if it comes down to skill it usually isn't as much of a problem unless we get another bizarre case of like you guys had where seed one and your seed two was spain hmm. then the difference is not as big as it might seem on the paper Usually you can assess when you are cooperating with other team whether you will be fighting against each other on a certain level. And I 
as as we discussed earlier, I don't think this is much of a problem, at least for me, to some extent. There is a point where you need to cut the cords and stop communicating, at least. Sure. Yeah, you've got to do it correctly. I, I'd be interested to see how much of an impact, say, Iceland versus Scotland, because they did some prep together, two different seeds, managed to get drawn against each other. Uh, Scotland came away with the win in that one, but I don't think it was a massive yeah. win. So I don't I think know. it was like 90 to 70. So Yeah, so it's one of those, did Scotland get the win because they knew what Iceland were doing, or did Iceland actually take it to a close round because they knew what Scotland was doing? Yeah. Could it have been 110 to Scotland, or could Iceland have won that? You don't know who's yeah. getting much from that scenario, I guess. But it is fun when it happens. Yeah. yeah. And that's all for the questions for today. On that note, I would like to add one thing that in two weeks' time, in the next episode, we will be talking about the Polish team championships because we will have, I think, the biggest event we ever had, 48 five-man teams. And we are even sponsored by, like, major companies that are not 40K-related, like dairy product companies or a big uh, restaurant chain. So this is very surprising to me. Cool. But I guess winning WTC sometimes can get you that clout that some companies <laughs> will see. It. Why, why uh, do I feel like the price support is going to be like a lifetime supply of butter? <laughs> like the I company. mean, when you, when you look at milk. the price of butter... Yeah. I mean, I'll take it over a box of figures. Yeah, uh, yeah, but we'll be talking about it. I think what we'll do is we might do it in two episodes. One analyzing the teams and then another one with the team members. So, And I think it will be very interesting because what I just said, this is Slate coming out tomorrow. List deadline is on Monday. Nice. We'll see. And there's... a few teams that are competing against each other and there's also international teams coming so i'm very interested to see what the teams will come up with and i expect a lot of new ideas so that one i i'm super interested to talk about and see what might shape up the meta because i think a lot of the as the, this is five man teams a lot of the lists that will be there will translate for singles Yes, oh, I'm super match, interested. Yeah. yeah, definitely so, looking forward to that episode. And I expect a lot of shake-up with the new armies coming in and nice. with all the changes. So uh, do you have anything to say before we end? No, as always, great episode. Thanks for everybody listening. Yeah. And see you in the next one if you want to add some more questions or interact with us please join us on patreon i'll not do the scuffed plaques because i'm not as good at scuffed plaques as ines so see you in the next one for more shows like this check out the goonhammer media network more info at media.goonhammer.com